So this is a slightly weird one. Um, as someone who makes their living podcasting, it's a bit strange that I'm going to start a podcast as a hobby. The idea is so young that I don't have a name for it yet. Uh, I don't have a theme tune for it yet. I kind of played with a similar idea maybe about a decade ago. Um, however, I thought I'd give you a sneak preview. Yesterday I had the privilege to talk to Marcus Stitz, who's most known for riding around the world in 2015-2016 on a single speed. And here's that conversation. Let me know what you think. Uh, the plan is to have conversations with people who I find interesting about a variety of topics, be it guitar, be it climbing, be it cycling, uh, or even politics. Who knows? Anyway, here's Marcus. Uh, welcome to this, the first episode of a new show, a show so new I don't actually have a name for it yet. Um, I'm joined by Marcus Stitz, who I first came across in, I think, 2015, 2016, uh, when he was involved in an exploit that we'll talk about later. Uh, Marcus, welcome. How, how's lockdown treating you? Uh, welcome, John. Um, pretty well so far, to be honest with you. I think like I'm, I think I'm getting a little bit tired after seven weeks now. Mm -hmm. um, I've been... Pretty busy at the beginning um, with working on new projects and writing and also producing a new film. So I kind of kept myself busy. Um, and I think this week I kind of decided I'm going to spend a week cycling <laughs> indoors, a little bit outdoors and just kind of like kind of refocus my mind a little bit with that. So it's been OK so far. We need to talk about this indoor cycling thing, because as I'm interviewing you, I think you're actually sitting in a turbo trainer. Yes. Um, so um, I know Mark Beaumont quite well and I know Steve Fade as well. And they're doing the World in One Day Challenge and they've been doing it for the last couple of weeks. And I have never been on a turbo trainer. And at the moment, <laughs> I think the closest thing I have to a road bike with skinny tires is a 1970s single speed. Um, so I think for the last couple of weeks, I was just like, oh, I'm not going to do this. And I think I always had a fair excuse not being able to get my hands on the towage one at the moment. And then Mark organized me one on the weekend. So um, I just, yeah, I, so, so no further good excuse to say no has gone. So, yeah, so I've just mounted my single speed on the turbo um, and yeah, trying to get used to that. I've kind of dug out my old road shoes again. Um, and yeah, so far it's it's. It's fine. I think it's it's very different to what I'm used to. But on the other hand, I think I'm just trying to see the positives and make the most of it. It's it's great because I can sit on this and do various other things while I'm cycling. That's actually quite cool. Drinking it, coffee and stuff. It's funny, actually. I mean, I, I watched uh, your film Distance last night. And I think you made a really good point in that. And that, you know, the, the, the phrase that's being used is social distancing. But it's actually just physical distancing. We're still socially connected. You know, you and I are, what, 22 miles apart just now? But we're yeah. still able to chat as if we're in the same room. So I think embracing the technology that keeps us in touch is really important at this time. It isn't social distancing. It is actually just physical distancing. Yeah, and I mean, it's part of the reason why I did the film as well. The, the, the story behind the film is, is quite interesting because I took that material last year in June when I was visiting a friend who lives near Oban then, um, I had the, like, the shots, there were some really nice shots in there, but I didn't really have a storyline because it was just a nice weekend trip to get away mm -hmm. and kind of get some headspace. And, um, and I love the area where I was from, one of my favourite parts in Scotland. And then It's yeah, where my ashes you... will be scattered when I'm gone at the head of Loch Etta. It's my favourite bit of Scotland of all of them. Yeah. 
and it's so yeah and 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 i think um like and then when i looked at the material again um and i thought like the whole social distancing isn't really social distancing i think like you know i'm still able to talk to people like we're not totally locked down you know we're not told you know you need to stop any social contact now and i think it's like yeah physically we are apart and i mean this is this is quite hard as well and i think it might be much harder for people who are not used to that i'm i'm, I'm fairly used to that because i've been traveling a lot um and whenever i'm out traveling basically my only means of getting in touch with uh, my girlfriend my family and anyone else is by some sort of yeah phone calls skype calls <laughs> whatsapp whatsoever so you know i think like in a sense i'm um, I, this is kind of why I think I, I can cope with the lockdown thing quite well because I'm essentially treating this like as another longer trip, although I'm not able to leave my living room. But on the other hand, you know, it's fine from a mindset point of view. Um, that's much easier to get through times like this when you kind of like remove yourself a little bit from the situation. It's funny, actually. I mean, we're known or you're known now for, for some, frankly, mad uh, expeditions across the world on a bike. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it all start? I mean, you, you were born in Germany. Have you always had a, a wanderlust? Have you, have you always wanted to, to move about? Um, I think there's this. So there's once um, going very far back into my childhood. I initially, in terms of biking, it took me a long time to learn to cycle. Um, I was always a little bit of an anxious kid and... Um, it took a while for me to mount two wheels. Um, once I had mastered that, um, uh, there's one occasion where the peace tour in East Germany passed very close to our garden. So we were living in a, an apartment block, um, but we had a garden on the outskirts of town. And we have pretty much, whenever the weather was right, after school, I spent my time there playing mm-hmm. with friends. And um, so the peace tour was passing. My mum wasn't really keen to take me there and kind of watch him. My dad was out working. So I kind of took my little foldable bike and went off by myself <laughs> with a blanket that was back in the days with no mobile phone reception. And <laughs> it's quite interesting. My mom must have been terrified by that. So I was, I think I was going about 10 kilometers, but back in the days that felt like basically like cycling around the world by myself. I felt really brave that day. An adventure. And I watched the, yeah, and I watched the guys go past and went back to the garden and everything was fine. Well, my mum was a little bit terrified by the whole thing. But I think, like, if you look at very far back, that's kind of where this whole started. And then um, we moved um, into a village um, about 15 kilometers um, out where I was born or where I grew up. And and from there onwards, like, I think for me to get to places, there was always a distance in between. So I never really had things readily available on my doorstep. And I think all of those things have shaped me over the years in, yeah. in my mindset. And then I started um, where the travel bug kicked in was in 2000 when I studied at university and um, I did a working holiday in my in my first um, break. So I did the first two semesters at our university and then went to the US and did a working holiday there um, for about three months. And basically arriving in New York, with a return ticket from New York in October and July. And what was happening in between, I had absolutely no clue. I had to find myself a job. And I, yeah, so I ended up traveling um, to, I stayed a bit in New York, then went to the Grand Canyon, worked there, went up the West Coast to San Francisco and then back to the East Coast. And I think this is, this is where I really, um, like the wanderlust kicked in. 
and and yeah, once you've done something like this, it's really hard to go back, yeah. kind of not doing it again. And and then at some stage, I think when I discovered the bike, so all of this like in the US, I had maybe two trips where I took a mountain bike. I remember I took a mountain bike around Lake Tao mm -hmm. um, and had a brief encounter with a black bear. <laughs> not so good. <laughs> um, thankfully, didn't do anything. Um, and then. I think where the bike really kicked in is that when I continued studying, I started exercise, um, rediscovered the bike again, and then went to New Zealand in 2007. And that's where kind of the whole cycle touring really started then. And you ended up somehow in Scotland, which, I mean, when you're talking about glamorous places, I mean, people who are here know how beautiful the country is. But, yeah. you know, you've travelled all across America, you've been to New Zealand. How did you, you decide to live in Edinburgh? I um, I did a um, semester in, on the University of Sunderland in 2003, and um, when I went up to Edinburgh a number of times when I was back down there, absolutely fell in love with the city because it's such a it was it's like yeah it's it is still I think my favourite city if you take well, all it's, the things. It's my hometown. It's it. where yeah, I was born. And it's, beautiful place first time i set my foot on edinburgh i was just like wow yeah. <laughs> this is kind of like this is totally amazing um so um and and again that's the sort of stuff i think i'm the sort of person once i've you know once i've seen something and i've kind of made my mind up this is what i like then i'm also quite ambitious in order to get there um so i always kind of had it in the back of my head that i want to go back to edinburgh and then two years later i did an internship in new york city and had a month left um, before going back to university and thought like, oh, well, I might as well see if I can get a job at Fringe Festival because that's kind of the easiest yeah. bit to get into Edinburgh um, and got a job after two days um, as box office manager for Underbelly. And so I came here in 2005 um, working a box office. <laughs> to be honest, I had no clue um, about managing a box office, but it's fine. It's, it's not that tough of a job, you know, if you, if you count properly and get a good amount of IT knowledge, it's fine. And um, and that was also kind of the start of returning back to Edinburgh to work here each summer. So I came back in 2006 for the summer working for Underbelly in 2007 um, as well. And then I moved to New Zealand. And even when I was in New Zealand, I took a month off to fly back to Edinburgh to yeah. work here over the Fringe Festival. Um, and then finally in 2009, I made the decision to leave New Zealand and kind of the aim was as proud as going back to Europe because I wanted to be a little bit closer to my family and spent four weeks in Germany and was looking for jobs, couldn't really find anything that was kind of like suited to what I was wanting to do. And then I saw a job at the Edinburgh International Festival. And again, it was quite a quick, quite a quick thing. They needed someone immediately. Basically, they said, like, if you're ready to start tomorrow, you can start tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It took a few more days to kind of sort out logistics. And then, yeah, and that's kind of since then I stayed in Edinburgh. I like the, the thing that you say about being close to your family, because one of your first big bike trips, I think, was riding home to visit them, wasn't it? You, you rode yeah. from Edinburgh to, to your family in Germany, which is, it's quite a commute. It, it's, it's a commute, 14-day commute, yeah. Um, the story, yeah, it was, I, so I spent two years, I know, yeah, two years in New Zealand with three Christmases, and, and over there I kind of really got to, got used to the fact of doing a longer bike trip over Christmas, because you've got plenty of annual leave, and it's also the sort of time, if you're not close to your family, you know, you possibly want to do something. Yeah fun, nice. And I was in New Zealand, you know, all I could do to keep in touch with them is do the old Skype call whatsoever. 
And then I came back here <laughs> and I kind of realized, actually, I would really love to do a cycling trip um, either before Christmas or um, during Christmas. But then the weather in Europe during that time is usually quite miserable unless mm-hmm. you go to southern Europe. And then I thought, so I, I spent the first year coming back to Europe, um, 2009, not doing it. And I was just like, this is not for me, just sitting around eating all the time and whatsoever. Um, so I decided back then already, well, next year, I'm going to cycle home for Christmas. So I've done my <laughs> adventure beforehand. I've got plenty of time then to chill out, sit down with my family, relax. And that's what I did. And that was the year when Edinburgh was just covered in snow all over. So um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough one, that one. <laughs> well, let, let's skip forward because there are other adventures between, but of course the one that everybody, uh, I think, first noticed you with was when you decided to ride around the world. Now, being Scottish, this is a, you know, it, it's a common thing to do. You know, you've got Mark Bowman who's <laughs> taken yes. off and, and ridden around the world. Um, you did it slightly differently, though, and there are two things that struck me about the way that you did it. The first is is the obvious one. You did it on a single-speed bike, which is, is unimaginable to me, because if you've got a gear you can climb in, you must have been yeah. pedalling at about 160 revs a minute on flat roads. So we can talk yes. about gear choice. Um, but yeah. the other thing is, you went the wrong way. Almost everybody seems yeah. to do it um, west to east, but you took off east to west. Um, yeah. Did you have a plan or did you just do as you'd done when you decided to travel before? Did you just make it up as you went along? I think, again, it was a combination of two. I had a, you know, I had a rough plan to say I didn't have a plan, which would possibly be, would be a straight life. So um, I made the decision in March that year in 2015 to leave my job and to set up around the world. And A, I had three months notice in my job and I really wanted to work until the notice period because I worked with great people. I had a great time there. So I didn't leave my job because I was fed up with what I was doing. I left my job because I wanted to do the trip. Um, And so I was finished by June. um, And I also knew that I'd need need a month or two to kind of get ready for the trip. Mm -hmm. Um, So adding those two months up is July, August. I knew that I'm going to be roughly leaving in September, what I did. And leaving in September would have brought me into some severe difficulties getting across the mountains of Asia and that time in the middle of winter, countries like Turkey and Iran. Um, So there was a, so there for me was possibly, I just, I think there were moments where I was possibly thinking about trying that, but then I also knew I, the thing is like, if you go around the world, you, you can pack for conditions, I would say up to minus five, you know, minus 10 at the very extreme with a bikepacking setup. If you go with pannier bags, you can possibly take much more winter clothing. But I wanted to take a single spear, I wanted to take pannier, uh, bikepacking bags. So mm-hmm. I knew, well, this is not going to happen if I leave in September. So what else I'm going to do? And then I was just looking at basically I then planned my trip based on the seasons. Um, and I thought um, getting across Europe in September is going to be really nice. Um, it has to be the best time of the year to do it because mm-hmm. it's the end of the tourist season um, and it's like France and Spain is going to be really nice cycling. So um, I decided on that one. What I didn't really factor in is that Iceland in October is cold already <laughs> and that I also needed to get across the continental divide in the US in November, which was also cold. Yep. Um, but never mind. So I kind of made the decision, right, I'm going to go across the US first. Um, 
that will get me to the West Coast at some stage of the end of November or in December. Then I can fly over to New Zealand, to New Zealand and Australia, basically in the middle of summer, and then head into Southeast Asia in April time, and then go back to Europe in summer. So in a way, I try to follow um, the end of summer, um, beginning of autumn, as much as possible. And I, I think there's a little bit of interesting thing. So I think the reason why a lot of people choose to go the other way around is because of prevailing winds. Because um, normally you will have westerly, southwesterly yep. winds. Um, what was very interesting that the hardest part of the journey, which is the Nullarbor, and I think if you look at, if you talk to people like Mark or Jenny or anyone else who has cycled across that bit of Australia, that psychologically is, is one of the toughest challenges. And the time I went through the Nullarbor um, was in the end of summer in Australia, and the prevailing winds um, on the Nullarbor are actually southeasterly winds. So, in a sense, that going the other way around um, towards Perth actually worked really well for me because on those 10 days, I only had one day of headwinds. Yeah. And that helped really much. And yeah, sometimes, like if you go across the US in some places, yeah, you will have a headwind. But I didn't really find that the wind was too much of an issue, especially if you're on a single speed. You can only go so fast. Yeah. And yeah, so, and there was the rationing behind it. What what was the decision to use a single speed? Uh, was it just to be, you know, did you just want to set yourself an extra challenge for something that was already an extraordinary challenge? Yeah, um, I just, I think with the single speed thing, so I started riding single speed in 2010 and I fell in love with it because it was something that was a little bit extraordinary, I think it's fair to say. Um, and also, but mostly because of the simplicity. You mount a bike and you ride. Um, it was quite interesting. I had a we did I did a podcast with Charlie a couple of days ago, and and I think we talked about like the evolution of bikes, especially over the last ten years. Mm-hmm. And I think we've developed something, or the industry has developed something which was incredibly simple to start with, into something incredibly complicated to end yeah. up with. And and one of the reasons why I love cycling is. You've got this simple thing that gets you a long, long way <laughs> to to get to great place to meet great people, and that has always stayed the core of my cycling activity. This is why sitting on a turbo trainer is quite odd, <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm you know I'm also kind of I quite like the simplicity of just spinning the wheels and you know just doing other things um, on 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 um, at the same time. So. And that was the reason behind taking a single speed. Um, it was just like I wanted something I knew. If I'm going around the world, I do not want to spend a lot of time fussing about my bike. I don't want to fix. I don't want to adjust gears. Um, I'm strong enough to ride up hills without a derailleur. Um, I knew that before I set off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was just like I think it was just a very logical choice to make for someone like me to kind of say, well, you've, I've ridden on a single speed for five years now. I've cycled things like the Bielachnaba on Bongir. I've gone up some incredibly steep roads in Scotland. <laughs> um, like, why would I not do this? Um, and, um, you know, in a sense, if I wouldn't have taken the, the single speed, I, would pos- well, I wouldn't have used the potential I had <laughs> for with the stuff I'd done beforehand um, for... Yeah, yeah, which is the, has been the biggest trip of my lifetime. I think that's fair to say. Um, and so, yeah. So, and I also, I mean, I was curious because 
there were a few people who were quite critical of that, saying, like, you know, cycling single speed for a thousand kilometers for Lantern to John Crowe, fair choice. Well, for going all around the world, are you nuts? And I was just like, well, you know, that's the thing that needs to be proven. And and, and in a way, it was a lovely thing to kind of see whether it's possible or not. Yeah, and as a bike mechanic, the simplicity of the thing gives you a very reliable machine. You don't have cables to worry about. You don't have derailers to break. Your chain's going to last for ages because it's not shifting across cogs. So if you're capable of doing it physically, it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and I think I think and coming back to the single speed riding, um, I think I had one time where I had a not a bad knee injury, but a knee injury bad enough to having to go to the doctor and having to get physio, and that was simply because on the road bike I was pushing the massive gears, mm-hmm. like I was, and and I was possibly cycling above my ability in terms of the strength I had. And the nice thing on the single speed is you are stuck to a ratio. Um, so I think you just, A, you have to condition yourself to kind of cope with that. So in, in the mountain bike sense, you know, you need to have proper leg and upper body power to get up a hill with a 32 to 18 ratio. Um, but also, um, if you look at the GPS data from, from around the world trip, it's very, very consistent. Like it's differs a little bit in countries like New Zealand that were incredibly hard to climb some of the hills because it was mainly off-road. But um, across the board, um, my average is pretty much consistent. And that's the cool thing. So I hadn't had, like, within a year of cycling around the world, I did not take a single ibuprofen. Um, and, and I think this is the kind of thing for me as well. I think for, like, I, I love cycling it gets me to places, um, gets me to kind of clear my head every now and then. But I'm very, very reluctant to take anything in order to improve my cycling or to having to recover from it. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole kind of thing of like pushing your body so hard that you need to take ibuprofen afterwards. I don't see the point in that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is just kind of like, I think it's a good thing for the body if you do it right and you do it in the right dose. Um, and, and, and that was the reason for the single speed as well, because I knew I'm not going to, if I'm on the Nullarbor, I can only cycle that fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is 32, a... 32-18 is a, not going to let you cycle fast on a flat road. No, about, I don't know what the miles that is, um, but I did about four, 24 kilometers an hour yeah. um, normally. And that looks incredibly fast if you pass with a car. <laughs> if you're on the bicycle, it's pretty slow yeah. <laughs> um but yeah it's fine i think an impossible question um in that year of your life mm-hmm. what are the highlights can you pick out maybe two or three things that that when you're very very old you know looking back in a life well lived uh, will will stick out in your mind from that year of your life yeah definitely definitely um so i think from a from a um, cycling perspective um, the first thing, because it's still fresh in my memory, was was going across Kyrgyzstan. Um, there was such a mind blowing experience because um, it was it was kind of like the combination of you know having spent years and years and years on the bike to get fit, and then being able to cycle in the mountains of the Tian Shan um, was just amazing. Like it was physically hard work. It was. In terms of mindset, possibly one of the biggest challenges I've ever done. You know, if you push your bike 
across an icy slope at 4,000 meters of altitude. Yeah. Um, and you can hear rocks tumbling behind you and you kind of go like, oops, why am I doing this? But on the other hand, you kind of go like, I've worked hard all of those years in order to get to a stage that I can actually do this. Um, and this is kind of, that's been, that's been amazing. Um, the round the world trip as well, you know, I think that's just gonna, I think it's fading a little bit in memory at the moment. Just um, a bit. What is it? Just a little bit, but I mean, it just, just, just the sheer, the sheer trip I met amazing. And, and I think it's really difficult to find a particular highlight from the trip because Basically, for a year, I got to ride my bike. <laughs> I went to some mind-blowingly beautiful places, um, and I met incredible people. Yeah. And I think the social aspect—that's that's the thing that sticks in my mind. And as characters, um, so just to take—and <laughs> as I said, it's hard to take one occasion. But um, there was one day when I cycled across um, um, the mountains in New Mexico, and ended up in Albuquerque and I ended up to stay um, with a couple over warm showers and um, they were so incredibly helpful. I remember I went into Albuquerque. It was the first time I had to put my down jacket on for cycling because it was just freezing cold. Yeah. <laughs> and then I ended up um, with the two of them and I was sitting with um, Bruce over a bottle of wine talking about things life in general there was a person i had never met in my life before and they had never met me you know they didn't know much about me other than possibly the things they possibly could find out over the internet and it was such an amazing evening you know yeah. i woke up the next morning being totally revitalized kind of like and there was just this kind of like and there were many of those situations where you kind of go like you know those two hours of Meeting people I've never met and I possibly will never meet them again in my life. The yeah. reality is like, you know, I can't go back to to meet all of those people again. Um, but yeah, it's just the sort of stuff, especially in times when like now when you when you um, travel is restricted, you kind of go like, you know what? I've done those things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like and that's that's the kind of thing. Yeah, they will they will stick in my mind yeah it's funny actually whenever i travel the people are what sticks in my mind you know the scenery is lovely you take the pictures and you look back at them and smile at the memories but it's the people yeah. that really stick in your heart i mm -hmm. mean just so interesting and, and so comp so just hospitality is wonderful you know people all around the world will just welcome you and, and for nothing you know just because they want to be nice uh, and that's what we remember yeah, and it's also, I mean, and again, for this time, it's interesting because the first thing I did is deleting news apps for my phone. Like, because what you recognize when you go around the world, essentially, the world is a really nice place. Yes. Like, even if you go into places which are, Iran is such a great example for that. Look at the news coverage about Iran. You will hardly find any positive news about the country there are a lot of issues in the country and especially if you look at the way women are treated and and things like this so i'm not you know I, <laughs> i'd never say you know i i agree with any of those things but then if you go to the country you travel to those tiny little villages and the world in those villages is a very different one you get from the news you know really welcoming people um, really well educated as well. Like yeah. a lot of them spoke English, 
Um, and if they didn't speak English, they had a relative who spoke English and then translated back to us. And, and, and that was the kind of thing, I think that's the thing where I realized, you know what, on this very macro level when you travel, like I would say 99% of the people are welcoming um, and curious about what you're doing and you have a great time. And there's, yeah, of course, there's a little bit of danger every now and then. But, I, you know, I think for your own um, health and well-being, you can ignore that <laughs> for yeah. the time being and not listen to those things. No, absolutely. Um, moving on, you've, you've done work recently in Scotland for Argyll and Butte Council and also, I think, for East Lothian as well, um, developing yeah. bikepacking routes. I've ridden a bit of the East Lothian one. Um, yeah. It's taking advantage again of the beautiful scenery of Scotland. Um, how do you find the routes? Do you look at the map or do you just go out on your bike and explore? Um, a combination of a lot of things. And I think like over having done this for almost three years now, I think that I've kind of um, shaped my approach a little bit. Um, so when I started doing that, um, there was when I developed the Capital Trail, um, there was just kind of on my own back. And a lot of those routes are... Historic. So I think a great inspiration for anything I've done so far is kind of looking at old historical routes in Scotland, twelve roads, military roads. Um, there's such an amazing network of ancient paths that mm-hmm. crisscrosses Scotland, which is, you know, I think for the work I'm doing is such a great starting point. Um, so whenever I, you know, go to a particular region, I kind of have a look at what what old growth roads, coffin roads and stuff like this exists. Um, and then how can I how can I combine those things together? Um, the the approach has somehow changed that um, I'm working on a project in Highland Perthshire at the moment. And my way of designing routes is about giving people a great incentive for cycling, um, but also to stop. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's like there's some routes which are, in terms of the riding, are stunningly beautiful. Um, but on the other hand, I think if you look at making a little bit, making them a little bit more accessible, there also need to be places along the route where people can eat. Mm-hmm. You know, where I can get some supplies. I think it's safe to say that um, a lot of people will possibly not fancy cycling 100 kilometers or more without any resupply <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. I think it just that makes. Um, you know, that that kind of would exclude a lot of people. So the way I look at things at the moment is, um, so when I did the project in Perthshire, I looked at all the places which are in the area, um, which could be of some sort of interest. Um, things like the Fortingal U, for example, mm-hmm. um, oldest hotel in Scotland. So, you know, because Scotland, again, is such a, such a rich place because the, the history dates back such a long time, you know, more than four or five thousand years at times. Um, so I was mapping all of those places. Then I was looking at cool places in between that are that are nice for cycling as well. So there's not much use if you if you've got a lot of interesting places, but you have to cycle on a massive big road in mm-hmm. order to get there. So that wouldn't work either. And and then combining all of those things, um, and then um, like the my approach to those sort of things. So I do the planning mostly on my computer. Um, but then the most important part of that is actually going out there, taking a the bike and ride it. Um, and then in that process, a lot of the things actually develop further because East Lothian is a good example for that because there were paths in East Lothian 
you won't find on the map. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and then you see this tiny little path hidden away and you kind of go like, I was planning to go this route, but then there's this great single trail to the forest, which a lot of people would enjoy. So, of course, I'm going to kind of try to find the ways to kind of incorporate that single track. That's why in that stage, you'll end up cycling a lot yes. <laughs> sometimes just to find an improvement of two kilometers somewhere. Um, but that's cool. That's the way I think this is kind of, um, I think this is, this is why the stuff I'm doing is very different from just using an online route planner because there's the online knowledge that goes into that, but there's also a very personal note in all of those trails and i think this is this is this is what i'm trying to do with bikepacking scotland well you're succeeding i mean my family are from preston pans originally and riding bits of your route in east lothian i got a completely new perspective on the the countryside yeah. I, I thought i knew so well so i think you're succeeding 100 percent in that what's the best place for people to find the routes that you're you're laying out for the councils so um there's a couple of websites which are really handy to start so there's heritagepaths.co.uk which is run by Scott Ways, the Scottish Right of Ways Association. That's a, such a rich resource because basically it's got all the old paths and it's got the old maps as well. And some of the trails, um, they no longer exist on modern maps, but they exist on maps from 1906 or you know, even mm -hmm. further, further, further than that. So that's a great starting point. Um, there's a couple of other websites as well, Geograph, um, Canmore, um, then I also kind of I'm also really keen to look at sometimes at local tourism organizations websites, you know, although they might not have information about um, particular cycling routes, but they give you a good look and feel of or kind of an, an idea. Argyle, for example, is about water. It's about water, about forests. It's not about, you know, massive mountains like in Torridon, for example. You won't find that there. Um, so I kind of always do that as well. And then sometimes look at individual routes from people as well. Although I must say that a lot of my approach is not trying to look at other people's stuff too much. Because I think as soon as you do that, there is a tendency potentially to copy things. Yes. <laughs> and and um, that's what I don't like to do. It's the same with my Land of World trip. I was deliberately not looking at other people's routes because I'm kind of going like, you know, I've got a very particular style of riding to um, make it fun for me. And that might not be the approach of someone else. So, yeah. Now, um, one thing that really interests me that you've done recently is, um, as long-term <laughs> listeners of the fellow cast will know, my middle son lives in Chongqing in China. And mm -hmm. I, th I think it will be a long while before I'm able to fly over to visit him which we've yeah. done every year since 2013. So I thought I might as well ride a bike to China. Um, yeah. And you rode the Silk Road, which is the obvious way to go. And we've got friends in a town called Zhangye, which is one of the yeah. entry towns for the Silk Road in China. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, amazing. Like, I, I only cycled parts of the Silk Road in Kyrgyzstan. So um, the Silk Road mountain race just taken some parts of the Silk Road, but it also goes over other parts of the Tian Chan. I think it's just a, a good, catchy name for for the race. But um, I, I guess, you know, I can, like, you, you get, you totally get a sense for what it's like. Um, imagine massive big mountains, um, snow-capped um, nomads, wild horses, um, a lot of cold water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's possibly the, 
my 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 shoe choice wasn't the greatest one on that trip. Um, but it's just I think it's a very for me Kyrgyzstan in particular was a very different culture to here. Um, very different approach to life, you know, just seeing the nomads still moving around the country with their yurts um, is, for me, it was quite refreshing because you're also, you see a very different life to what we are living here. You know, I think mm-hmm. you kind of sometimes living in, in the Western world, you get very stuck to those principles of owning things and making money. <laughs> you know, that you see those nomads in their yurts. They're living a very, very simple life, but they're smiling. And, and that's the thing that struck me as this is, this is great, you know. Um, and the other thing as well, um, I think, and that's possibly the same if you go to other countries. Those are countries that used to be part of the former Soviet Union. Yeah. And I grew up in East Germany and I speak Russian, not great any longer. I had Russian at school for 10 years, but at least I've got the ability to read signs. And especially when I was traveling across Kyrgyzstan, um, I was... My, my Russian in little bits came back into my mind, which was quite nice. And you'll, <laughs> again, like for me, it was um, when I arrived in Bishkek and then I cycled um, out about 60 kilometers, um, I automatically, I, I feel like I'm going to be transformed back uh, 30 years in time, back to my childhood in East Germany, because there were like Lenin statues and a lot of the communist symbols and <laughs> in a way, like a lot of the machinery and whatever they were using was basically the same as in 1989 when the war came down in Germany. So for me, that part of the journey was quite important as well because I could, while I was riding my bike, just kind of like think a little bit more about um, my upbringing and also about the whole concept of I'm actually having the freedom to do this here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can go to those countries. They allow me in. Um, they allow me to get a sense of their culture as well. And I think that was just, it was a, it was a lovely experience. Yeah. It's funny, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go now because you're sitting, sitting in a turbo and I, you've already sat in the turbo for longer than I want to. Um, where can people find out more about you? I mean, I've seen one of your talks. You're a very engaging public speaker. Uh, once all this mm-hmm. is finished, people get out, if, if you can, and watch one of Marcus's talks because they're fantastic. We follow you on Twitter. You're very, very active on social media. Uh, but where's yeah. the best people or the best place for people to follow you on the internet? So there's, there's, there's basically three things I'm doing at the moment. So there's my own stuff. There's my website, marcusstitz.com, um, which has a lot of the information I've actually one of the um, upcoming lockdown projects going to be to bring that a little bit more up to date because there's been so much stuff I've been doing in the last few years that doesn't yet feature on that. Um, And there's a couple of social media channels as well, um, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And I think most recently YouTube, I, I am working on a couple of film projects this year and the whole filmmaking has basically been what I'm kind of want to move more into. I love the stuff that you're doing yeah. with drones. You know, your drone work is absolutely inspirational because it gives you a sense of the scenery that you're moving through. You know, you're not just a yeah, small point yeah. in a sea of green. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm working on a new film, um, not as we speak because I'm sitting on a turbo train, but in my in my <laughs> head, um, I've got some lovely footage from cycling the Cabatera Austral in Patagonia um, and I haven't done anything yet with the footage because a lot of the work I'm doing, all the stuff on social media you possibly would have seen that I, 
I, I, I'm quite keen to tell stories and inspire people to that, you know, and, and that, and I think like, if you've got a good story, um, you can get things to people much easier other than if you don't have that. So like a lot of the stuff is about storytelling. So that's my personal stuff. And yeah, hopefully I'd love to go back to, I've got some cracking pictures from Morocco, which was my most recent trip. Um, and yeah, hopefully I'll be able to do some public speaking again whenever that's possible. Then there's Bikepacking Scotland, um, which is a large part of my life as well. Mm -hmm. And But that's about the roots. So there's bikepackingscotland.com as a website, which features the roots. And then there's a Facebook page and Instagram and Twitter as well. And then the next um, newer project is that I'm running events with Charlie Hobbs, which I call the Dirt Dashes. And that's very much, I think... In a sense, that's something that combines me as a person and my bikepacking Scotland approach because it gives me the ability to design shorter routes and get people out there to have fun. That's mm -hmm. like Charlie is pretty much the same as me. We're both single speeders. Um, we both love cycling to the pub every now and then. Again, when that's sociable, acceptable again, <laughs> and the pubs are open. But, you know, I'm, I'm a keen racer, but... Um, at the same time, you know, I also like, you know, I, I love the fun aspect of cycling and the Dirt Dash events are pretty much about that. And they're a little bit more, a bit more wacky <laughs> at times as well. You know, it's just kind of, we had this, we just started a podcast for that and it's about bicycles and well-assorted nonsense. And I think that's exactly what the events are about, you know, is to try to get people outdoors um, in a nice community of people. Um, and so the stuff is about uh, about the Dirt Dash. This is on dirtdash.cc and a couple of social media channels as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Marcus. Once this is all over, I'll take a pedal the 22 miles up the road and pick your brains about riding to China and buy you a beer. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> it's It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, a, a quick question before we go. Did Mark get a fan for you? Have you got a fan for your turbo trainer? Or do I need a fan? It, um, I, I would imagine right now you're sweating buckets and you're far too hot. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, no, not yet. But I'm pretty sure that I, I might be able to get that from the Tesco. It's just, just around the corner here on one of my essential journeys. Yeah, a fan, so. will, a fan <laughs> will change your life on the turbo trainer. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I, thanks for that advice. I've got two big windows I can open as well, so <laughs> I can at least listen to the birds as well. well <laughs> thanks again, Marcus. I'll hope to see you soon, eh? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.